Welcome everyone to Quicksilver Church. It's good to see your faces. And what I'm what we're doing today is going through the flood narrative. Um, and this is one of the most challenging and difficult sections of the Bible to talk about because it has to do with God wiping out most of, if not all, humanity. Um, and so there's a bunch of questions that come up with this. Um, so many questions. And yet, as we're going to see, the text has the, the, the text doesn't directly answer um, a lot of those questions. Um, but the, one of the one of the main things that I wanted to kind of think about for us today is what is the meaning of the flood? How can we understand the meaning of this flood narrative? And I'm not going to pretend that what we talk about today, I'm going to cover the entire meaning. I just want to capture some of it. Okay. And so uh, one of the things that I think is difficult as we talk about the flood is our culture is not good about speaking of death. Death is a taboo topic. And we have so many technologies that uh, cause us to stave off death. So at the beginning of life, we have fertility um, technologies that enable uh, life to begin. Um, and on, at the, uh, on, the, on the back end, we have technologies that increase lifespan. And so our culture really does have this kind of obsession about making life possible and extending it for as long as, as can be. And because of that, we, we tend to avoid discussing death. Um, and yet the Bible is, has a lot of death in it. And to be a Christian means understanding death and, and coming to grips with what it's about. And so as we think about the flood and death, you know, it's not the most pleasant topic. Um, there are three things that I wanted to kind of talk through today. One is that flood is the flood is cleansing and judgment against evil. Number two, the flood as at this permanent stoppage, um, a permanent stoppage and loss. And then three, the flood as the context for selective rescue. Okay. The flood is this context for selective rescue. So that's what we're going to be talking through today. And I'm going to have the verses up. This is, we're going to start in Genesis chapter six, verse eight, Genesis chapter six, verse eight. And I'm going to read the entire chapter and you can, you can follow with me. Okay. This is Genesis chapter six, verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. 
and of every and of and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you thou shalt they shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind two of every ever of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up it shall serve as food for you and for them noah did this he did all that god commanded him this is the the reading of his word and in our life groups we've been following through you can you can stop share michelle in our life groups we've been uh we've been doing this section our life groups actually don't follow the sermon our life the sermon follows the life groups in our life groups we've already discussed this passage um chapter six and chapter seven i'll be reading parts of chapter seven um later on in our in our sermon um, but what you'll notice is throughout this uh passage you have echoes forward from the past when i say echoes forward from the past i mean echoes forward from past parts of genesis okay you'll notice like it says male and female and according to every kind all those different uh elements they're they're repeated forward um the second thing you'll notice as you get into verse 11 okay when you read verse 11 it says now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and the earth was filled with violence and earlier in chapter six you also get a sense of how messed up the earth is becoming because it says that the um every intention every thought and intention of a man's heart was evil and so you get the sense you get the uh, pervasive there's a pervasiveness of evil the depth of evil um, and then now there's a little bit more specifics. It's not super specific, but you get a little more specifics in that it says the earth was filled with violence. And the, the implication seems to be is that the evil in the hearts of man have caused this kind of ecological disaster throughout the earth. That all the, the, the evil within the heart of mankind has spread, has radiated outward to not only affect the spiritual condition of the planet, but also the physical condition of the planet. Every aspect of the earth is corrupt, okay? And that's kind of the pervasiveness of this. Um, and so you see, you know, the earth was filled with violence. And, and again, we're not, it's not clear exactly what that violence is about. It, it certainly would include violence among people, but it could also certainly include violence among the different creatures. And as, well, as we see, this flood is gonna affect all living creatures. And so this takes us to um, think about what's the nature of evil, right? And one, one thing that I mentioned last week about the nature of evil <clears throat> is that it is uh, falling short of God's intentions for humanity and for, for, for his creation. <clears throat> and another way to think about that is to fall short of being an image bearer of God, to go against the image, the likeness for which God has created us. And so uh, I was talking with Fred the Gator about the sermon, and he, he talked about sin um, as a failure of being. It's certainly a failure of doing, but it begins with a failure of being. It's, a, it's, it's the state of, of falling short of who God is and what, and what God is like. And because of that, God is grieved over mankind. Um, and there is this uh, response God has. And so that takes us into this realm, this first point of, the flood as a type of cleansing and as a type of judgment. And last week, I also mentioned the idea of responsibility, <clears throat> that God is responsible for his creation and he's responsible for the evil that has been caused. 
And I think one thing that can be confusing about this term responsible is it can also be understood as causation. Okay. That when I say God is responsible for the evil that's happened, you might hear that. And, and that is one of the meanings. You might hear that as God causes evil. That's not how I intended it. And, and I apologize if that, that, that wasn't clear. I think what I meant um, as far as responsible is that God is invested and accountable and engaged with the consequences of his creation. Okay. God is engaged. God is responsible from the, from the standpoint of he is involved heavily is, is totally involved with the consequences of this, of this evil. Um, he is responsible from the standpoint of the buck stops with him. Ultimately, he's the one that is accountable for the actions of his creation. And so, and, and therefore that's how he, that's out of this responsibility is why he decides to wipe out the earth. And so that means um, God is, has ownership over response. Okay. He has ownership over how he responds to what he has created, even though he is not directly responsible for the evil itself. The gravity of the situation requires this kind of response. Um, and so in this, in this world, we've been, we've been having some conversations about um, so many conversations over the past six months about racial injustice. And we will, um, Art Counts is helping to organize a, a, a panel um, with a, a couple African-Americans to talk about race here in the Bay Area within, within tech. And we'll be um, giving you some more details about what that's gonna look like. And in these conversations about racial injustice, definitely the, the uh, idea and the theme of police brutality has come up. And in the line of uh, police brutality, um, there's always there's been these questions of how can we have you know, equivalent um, punishment for types of crime in between groups of people, whether it's African-American or white or otherwise, right? How can we have equivalent justice punishment um, of evil? And what I think is important here is that there is an assumption that evil must be punished. Now we may, we may have disagreement over what that looks like, over how that punishment is distributed, but the assumption, the basic assumption is whenever there is evil, there must be an appropriate consequence or punishment of it. And I think it's important as we wrestle with how disturbing the flood is that God responds by punishing evil. God has a response to evil. That judgment is a response to evil, and that is justice. That is what justice means. And so we may, um, we may disagree, certainly, with how God chooses to punish evil. But I think we can agree that, in a, that justice is to respond to it, that it is not an option for God not to respond in some way to evil, that the act of justice itself must be um, responding and punishing the source of evil. And I think... Um, in addition to that, this whole idea of judgment against evil is also a way that God gets our attention and that um, this cleansing that God can do through um, ecological disasters, right? Such like a flood or like COVID-19, they are ways in which God wants to help us reflect, okay? And I'm not, I'm not ready to go as far to say that there's a specific act or behavior that God is judging with COVID-19. I, I don't think that's helpful. But I do think that God gets our attention through pain and suffering. Okay, that is certainly one way God can speak to us. And so I think it's important as we think about judgment against evil, that God allows that, that the flood is, is that, um, that it is cause for us to reflect about the evil in this world and about our own personal evil. And also to be thankful that because of Jesus, we get to escape the greatest consequences of evil in ourselves. And I'll be talking more about that. So second, 
the idea of the flood as permanent stoppage and loss. Let me read the beginning of chapter seven. I'm going to read from seven, one to, um, I'm just reading the first five verses. Then I'll come back to it. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. You can, you can stop sharing. So uh, this is the second point that uh, the flood as permanent stoppage and loss. And that seems like an obvious statement. And yet I think it's important to recognize that death is stoppage, that death ceases. 99.9% .9 of the time when something dies, it does not come back. Okay. It doesn't come back. Um, and that all the breath of life, everything that exists on dry land, it's, it takes its final breath. Okay. And so, and the second thing I'd observe as we go through this is that there's attention to numbers and details. It's not immediately clear what these numbers mean. And yet, as you continue to read in this chapter, I'm not going to read the entire thing. You see, um, there's like uh, the number seven, which is repeated again. When I say repeated, it's, it's been mentioned uh, previously um, in Genesis. For instance, the seven days of creation, um, that Enoch is the seventh son in chapter five. And so you have the number seven echoing forward. You have now 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And so they're, they're all echoing back. And then you have the other, the other interesting thing is you have uh, Noah bringing in these animals. He's commanded to bring in these animals. And there's, again, the seven. You have the seven of the clean and the, versus the unclean. And that's kind of an interesting association because clean and unclean as a concept probably didn't exist at that time. Uh, when I say at that time, uh, during the floods, the flood period, but because Genesis is written as part of the Pentateuch, um, attributed to Moses, the Jews would have understand clean versus unclean, right? Those that crept on the ground. Um, and so there's also the sense like there, you got these seven animals over here, and then they're supposed to bring all these different animals in each according to its kind. And that is uh, another uh, reference, if you will, back to the Genesis account in, in the first creation, Genesis chapter one. It's a, it's a, it's a callback to Genesis chapter one, that there seems to be like this kind of new creation that's happening. And we're going to see more of that in chapter eight, but the way to think about the flood, and we had a, we, we had kind of a, a little bit of heated discussion about this in our life group. The flood is kind of a reset. Okay. It is, it is, it is a, it's a type of reset and the, the word reset, I want to look this up. The word reset means to start again or to change and start differently. Okay. So oftentimes when something's going wrong, like the first thing that happens if something's going wrong with your computer or your phone. Um, you know, you reset it, right? You just, you start it over again and you hope that something different happens so that it'll start working again, right? And this one is, this is similar to that. God is doing a reset with the flood um, and he's starting over with someone different with just, just with Noah and anyone associated with Noah. And so I think it's important as we think about the time that we're in, um, COVID-19, you know, originally when we um, started this pandemic, um, there was a lot of, uh, for me, some enthusiasm because I thought, okay, this is just like a forced vacation for a month or two. And as we're now, what, probably in the seventh month? Yeah, we're in the seventh month. Going the seventh month of shelter in place, um, it is clear, I think, to 
everyone, this is not a forced vacation. This is a new normal and this is a reset and not just a reset in terms of starting over from scratch, but a reset in that we're starting differently. And I think the flood gives us some opportunity to think about um, what permanent stoppages look like, that there are certain aspects of life that won't return the way they were before. Things like the large public gathering, the, the death, if you will, of a, of a mega church, which includes that large public gathering, the death of the handshake, the death of coming into the office for a corporate job, all these different things. Um, we, we actually don't know yet exactly whether they've died or not, but we do need to come to terms with they may not come back. Um, and with the flood, you have all these creatures, including most of humanity that will not come back. And there is a mourning and a grieving that goes with that. And so as we think about permanent stoppage and loss, even as we're going to get to the gospel and the, the resurrection that's going to happen and, and the salvation, there is an importance in grieving what has been left behind. And often what, what is left behind, you know, we can see them as good, but the way God uses the reset is to get rid of what is evil. And so we can even mourn or perhaps celebrate the death of evil in this. And that's my last point. The flood as the context for selective rescue. The flood as the context for selective rescue. Now in chapter six, I think it's verse 18. Yeah, in chapter six, 18, it talks about, um, but I will make a covenant. God says to Noah, but I will make a covenant, but I would establish my covenant with you. And this is the first time that term covenant appears um, in, 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 the, in the Bible. And the idea of covenant is a hugely important theme throughout the scriptures. And the way I define it, and I'm going to continue to, to uh, add to this, but the way I define it for now is the sacred promise between two parties that lasts as long as the covenant-making parties are alive. And in this case, God is the one making the covenant, so this covenant lasts as long as God lives. And notice some of the implications of why God makes this covenant. It says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then later it says, Noah is a righteous man, that he is blameless among his generation. We don't know that he's perfect. In fact, you can make a good argument he's not perfect based on, on actions that Noah later takes. But what I want you to notice is that anyone who associates himself with Noah lives. Okay, Anyone who has an association with Noah uh, lives. And then the fact that God chooses one person. He chooses one person. And throughout salvation history, God is known for choosing people and he chooses one person. So Noah is the rescuer. He's the one who rescues. And then I want to talk about some of the other details um, that are going on. There's this kind of uh, the details of the ark and the ark is a, is a floating box. It's 300 cubits long and 500 cubits wide and 30 cubits in height. And so it's, it's kind of like this and it's kind of flat. And the thing that kind of that the thing that I thought about um, is because it's built like a floating rectangle and it's built neither for comfort nor speed. Um, the thing I thought about it, it's kind of like a floating coffin. You know, the ark is kind of built like a floating coffin, um, but it's not a coffin in any conventional sense. It's an anti-coffin, right? It's anything that goes in the coffin lives, and anything outside the coffin dies. And so I think that's just an interesting idea to think about. Um, the ark is the anti-covenant, or you can just call it a, a rescue boat, right? Because it really is a rescue boat, but it doesn't move. It just sits in the middle of the storm. The ark sits in the middle of the storm. Um, and I think what's fascinating about this is that God, in choosing the ark as this instrument of salvation, as this instrument of rescue, 
did not choose the ark to be separate from the flood. He did not ask uh, Noah to build it on top of a mountain. He did not ask Noah to build a plane. He did not ask Noah to build a bunker. He did not insulate, I mean, other than the ark itself, he did not insulate um, Noah and all these creatures and his family from the uh, outpour of, of rain and the outpouring of the great deep. He sticks Noah right in middle. The ark is right in middle of the uh, downpour. And I think that's a fascinating way to think about how God works because God doesn't rescue us from a storm by having the storm go somewhere else. He actually puts us right in the middle. Okay. He puts Noah right in middle of the storm and yet does something to uh, save him from it. Okay. What? <laughs> okay. And so my family, my family's responding to this message there. They're kind of making fun of me. Okay. And so as they emerge from the, as the Noah and his inhabitants emerge from the ark, they enter a different world. Um, and so what, what I think is interesting to be able to think about this is a couple different uh, implications of this idea. And one is that now with this flood, we have some new opportunities for God to be able to minister to the world. And so in, in applying this to the way we think about church today, and COVID, there are new opportunities for how we can think about interacting with this world, new opportunities for mission. And so with the death of the large public gathering and the death of the megachurch, um, or the way the megachurches operate, um, there are some, and, and you look at things like acts and persecution and how that allowed the church to, to prosper and to be able to grow. Um, there are new opportunities for the mission of God to go forward. So I'd like you to imagine as we think about death, in this context, as we think about a flood, could we also think about and, and imagine ways in which the church can go forward? You know, we did a, a creek cleanup um, last Sunday. Um, Katie, Katie Ewing um, and Judy helped to organize. And it was, it was kind of disturbing, to be honest, because we got to see how the homeless encampments around um, in Guadalupe Creek have grown and proliferated. And there were definitely moments during that time that was quite scary. Um, and most of these uh, homeless populations up to now have been invisible, but now you see, especially if you're off Monterey Road, you see encampments popping up all over San Jose. And there is a new opportunity for us as the church to be able to serve these groups of people. And I want to I want to really um, emphasize this is not this is not easy. This is not easy at all. But there's a new opportunity for the church to be able to meet people in the midst of the kind of death and destruction that COVID and the results of COVID have been spreading. And then lastly, um, death as a context for selective rescue. Um, we talked about um, this association with Noah. And I think it's fascinating to think about um, how, I mean, I, th I think it's easy to, be, to, to think about Noah in terms of he is an example for us. And of course he is. We want to be obedient. It says repeatedly, Noah did all that God commanded him. And certainly Noah is an example for us. But I want us to think about Noah as a foreshadowing of Jesus, because you'll notice Noah, anyone who comes in contact with Noah is saved. Anyone who comes in contact with him. And I think about um, his uh, daughters-in-law, right? He's got sons and his sons have wives and they're saved. 
and they're saved because they're married to his son and his son, they're, they're sons of the, of, of the father Noah. And it doesn't actually mention whether any of Noah's family had faith. It doesn't mention whether, whether they were righteous. In fact, you can make a good argument they were not righteous, but they had an association with Noah. And because of that association, they were saved. They were, they were rescued. And even these other animals, right? It's not clear, it's certainly not clear that they have any faith either. The animals don't have any faith. It's not clear the animals were righteous either. And yet if Noah happened to be out when he was looking for the creature and you were found, then you also were saved um, in the anti-coffin. And so when I think about this, I think about what it means to know Jesus. And I think about the grace that comes from knowing him. Because what it means is throughout the New Testament, there are many different formulations of what it means to have eternal life. And yet in all of them, there is some association with Jesus. There is some association with his faith. There is something someone says, there's something someone does that connects them to the son of God, to the son of man. And so the sharing question that I have for today that I want us to discuss in our sharing time is what are you grateful for because of your association with Jesus? What are you grateful for because, because of your association? One of the things that the scriptures talk about in the New Testament, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And in that section, it makes a connection between the flood and baptism. And it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, that's Noah's family, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what's the saying? This is a little bit complicated, but uh, one, what the first point that God is making is he exercised great patience in the days of Noah. He's talking about this hundred year period five from between Noah was 500 years old to 600 years old before the, before the flood came patiently waiting as the ark was being built. And then, and then what Peter does in the context of talking about suffering, he talks about how these eight people were brought safely through the water, that the flood was a kind of baptism. It was an immersion into death and then bringing out into life. And that's what the Christian act of baptism means. We talk about it in terms of cleansing and it absolutely is cleansing, but it also represents being put into death, being put into the middle of the storm as we are associated with the death of Jesus so that we could be associated with the life of Jesus. And in doing so, being associated with the life of Jesus, we are now given a good conscience, a clean conscience that's been cleansed of evil acts. And that's one thing that I am thankful for in my relationship with Christ, that I have forgiveness of sin and that my past has been cleansed and I'm no longer a prisoner to the past patterns of my life. And so as we think about that question, as we think about baptism, as we think about death and the meaning of the flood, will we recognize that the way God uses death is to triumph over it, but he will not triumph over it by having us avoid it. He actually takes us into the middle and brings us out. Church, would we hold on to that meaning today as we associate with Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for the way you've given us life. 
and thank you that though disturbing that the path of life goes through the grave that in bringing the flood you judged evil and that in bringing your son you judged evil through the death of the cross through his death on the cross and thank you that we get to join with him in that and that we are baptized with Jesus into death we are immersed into death as the world was immersed in the flood and thank you that throughout this death you had a plan for salvation for all those who are associated with Noah and in the same way you have a plan of salvation for all those who are associated with you Jesus so glorious god would we hold on to death as much as it leads us to life will we hold on to the death of our past and our evil as much as it re- releases us into life to say goodbye to evil to say goodbye to our past and those patterns we trust you we pray this in your name amen